Oh, but you won't be in a cellar, my lion-hearted young man, or in a cave. You are going to be out in the open. Hold his arms. He was pulling on heavy leather gloves. The other men who were with us had seized my arms and pulled them behind me. What are you doing? Hyacinth asked. He was truly stupid. Even more stupid than I had thought. I stared at him amazed and never even felt the first blow, scientifically aimed, as it hit me in the face. Hyacinth, what did you think was going to happen? Welcome, young princes. I'm Noelle. And I'm Caitlin. And this is the Atolian Archives, your Queen's Thief reread podcast to get you through the wait for Return of the Thief. It's May 31st, 2020. Today, in a short chapter, Sophos discovers who betrayed him as his home goes up in flames. Shouldn't have underestimated Hyacinth. Damn, I guess not. Which, Sophos doesn't like Hyacinth because Hyacinth reminds him of himself, but he shouldn't have underestimated Hyacinth, so... Perhaps he shouldn't underestimate himself. Hmm, a good point. Mm. Mm. Hyacinth is so distraught that Sophos has found out that he was involved in this plot. He kept saying, like, you would have done me favors when you were king and we would have still been friends and you would never have had to know. Like, they all knew that the endgame rebels plot was to make Sophos king. Hyacinth says... They want to make you king. That isn't a bad thing. They call Sophos prince, and he's surprised because he says officially, I was heir to Sunus, but no one ever called me prince. I was only a placeholder. The plan from the start with the rebels was that they would kidnap Sophos, wait until they've defeated his uncle, put Sophos on the throne, and then tell him what to do as king, or rule for him, or whatever. But Sophos surprises them with... The amount of fight that he has in him. Yeah. To the point where the leader of the kidnappers calls him my lion-hearted young man. Which is something Sophos would never describe himself as. So there's this disconnect, which we started talking about last chapter. I'm really excited about tracking this in this read. Is the disconnect between the way Sophos thinks about himself and the way that he really is. Because he's so self-deprecating. He really has no self-confidence or self-esteem, like, at all. And he doesn't- it doesn't even register with him that he's being brave right now. It doesn't register with him either that he's killed two men already. Yeah! He doesn't even think about it! What a different reaction than Eugenides when he does the same thing. Yeah, because the first people Jen killed, he was, like, traumatized right afterwards. Awake into the night thinking about their families, like. Jen had known himself to be capable of doing that, but he hadn't wanted to. And so he'd thought through, like, the philosophical implications of that act. Whereas Sophos, I don't know if it's even registered with Sophos that he did that. I don't think so at this point. That's not where his mind's at right now. No. He's, he's more focused on his grief for his mother and sisters who have just, he thinks, died. And he thinks that the kidnappers are going to be disgusted with him because he cries mm -hmm. over his family. And that's what he's focused on, rather than his demonstrations of bravery, which is clearly what they're actually noticing. Mm -hmm. 
Hyacinth says no one was hurt, no one important, when they just killed all the servants. Literally, they were like, kill the servants. Down with the aristocracy. But then they learned that his mother and sisters were in the house, and the amusement of the onlookers faded. That is serious. Yeah, now that they've killed noblewoman. And it says, um, Bazarus, the main leader, was about his father's age and showed signs of a similar life of violence. So that's something interesting about Sophus's own father, is that we got in the last chapter um, a glimpse of what he expects from Sophos about, you know, martial skill is tied to being a man, violence is tied to being a man, whatever, so that tells us a little bit more about him. Maybe why he's, why he has these expectations for Sophos. And it demonstrates that there hasn't really been a prolonged time of peace. I think it can give us the rationale for why is it so important to Sophos's father that Sophos learn these martial skills and become competent with a sword, like not just to attain some you know, ideal of manhood, some sort of ideological thing, but to be able to defend himself, to be able to make it to old age or whatever, to be able to defend his mothers and sisters in case of something like this. Like these are actual skills that his father wants him to learn to save his life, I guess. Which they just mm-hmm. did, you know? Because of Sophus's training, however lackluster that was, he did live to the end of the day. In Greek mythology, Hyacinth is the lover of Apollo. I can't tell if there's irony in this character being named Hyacinth because he's named after this figure that was so beloved, or if, like, I'm trying not to read homophobia into the inclusion of this character. I think I read his name choices more of a commentary on what a false friend he is. Because, you know, Hyacinth, the flower, something beautiful, something cherished, something loved, as a friend would be, but then he portrays Sophos like this. Generally, not at all, not any qualities we would associate with the wonderful flower that we love. There's so much about, like, in, in noble circles, who can you trust and who's a false friend, and, like, it's nice on the outside, bad on the inside. That's what Hyacinth has made me think of, is that... You know, he was always making up to Sophos because of Sophos's position, mm-hmm. not because of who he was as a person. And Sophos is probably going to have to contend with a lot more of that once he's actually king. And there's so much significance to names in these books, uh, both in their accuracy and their inaccuracy. Like Eugenides, his name is also his title, but then Irene and Helen have that whole conversation about how their names don't fit them. Mm-hmm. And later on in a few chapters, Sophos has a whole internal narration about what names are and aren't typical for slaves, too. Mm-hmm. We learn more about how slavery works in this society in this chapter, too. Um, Sophos narrates, The camp below was that of a slave trader. Because slaves don't often change hands nowadays, the slaver traveled from place to place, buying up slaves one at a time. My parents could remember when there was a regular slave market in most towns of any size. 
Now families sell off slaves only when they are desperate for the money, and their neighbors look down their noses as if the family has been reduced to selling off children. There are new slaves, of course, people who can't pay their debts and other criminals, but the slave markets on Letnos happen just a few times a year, and slavers must travel to gather their wares. I did some quick and dirty research about slavery in ancient Greece and Rome and in the medieval Byzantine Empire, and I think that slavery in antiquity is a lot more relevant to this book than uh, medieval slavery is, but medieval slavery, particularly in the Ottoman Empire, that is going to be relevant to Thick as Thieves. Because she's really, she's drawing from a lot of different places and times in her creation of this world, which we call it like, oh, it's fantasy Greece, but it's really uh, wholly imagined in a lot of ways, and there are a lot of different threats. In the Western imagination, ancient Greece is supposed to have invented democracy. But in this imagined world, the world of the Queen's Thief, they don't have the concept of democracy at all, and they appear to never have had it. So we're looking at a, a different society with a different set of justifications. But I think it's still cool to look at uh, the, the history that Megan Whalen Turner is drawing from. So in ancient Greece and Rome, most slaves were people who were captured by war or piracy, but you could inherit the status. Um, they also had debt slavery, um, just like Sophos was talking about. Something that I found that I thought was really interesting is this article by Victoria Cuffel called The Classical Greek Concept of Slavery. When slavery is an imposition of fate, the actual slavery is secondary to the humbling of the spirit. Slavery is little more than a tool in the hands of the gods who use it to demonstrate the tragedies of greatness and pride to men. Slavery is a haunting and ever-present threat to remind men that power may be reversed and become weakness, that the mighty may fall. That concept can, in the end, reinforce hierarchy. Yeah. Because the the tragedy inherent in this situation from that perspective is the idea that somebody who would naturally be powerful or free has been reduced to the status of those who are unfree. So it's not actually at all uh, helpful for the people who are already in this situation. It just allows the romanticization of a situation like the one that Sophos is in. The point of view that still basically only benefits the higher classes, right? And not yeah. the actual slaves. Yeah. I'm interested in this view of slavery that we get in this chapter that, um, like, it used to be much more common, but now you only sell slaves when you're desperate for the money and their neighbors look down at them from doing it as if they're selling children. So that's interesting in that it implies that slaves have a semi-familial relationship with their owners, but I feel like that this whole paragraph is at odds with the view of slavery that we get in the next few chapters. The people who are justifying slavery would tell that to themselves. The rationalization uh, gymnastics. Yeah, that's bullshit. Possibly part of the reason Sophos uh, 
mentions this view is because we learn in the next few chapters his own family owns slaves or has owned slaves yeah um maybe this is getting a little too soon but his when he's when he's narrating to himself thinking to himself um about names for slaves he says um one of his old nurses named her son shovel because she was a foreigner who had become enslaved and she heard the word once and she thought it sounded nice i'm i'm still thinking about just slavery in general in this world and it's interesting that slavery plays such a big part in this book and it's clearly a very common very accepted way of life in Sunus, but it was not at all mentioned even a little bit like even once in the thief or the queen of atolia in edis or atolia i think the queen of atolia has one oh you're right passing reference yeah atolia says like oh the men who had been looking at her right before she kills her first person becoming queen were looking at her like they used to like she had seen men looking at slave girls you really see anybody working in the fields yeah, in the thief. I don't think so. There are just fields. They're just in among the olives and the olives are alone. It is empty of uh, human presence. So this paragraph where it says um, his parents could remember when there was a regular slave market in most towns of any size. Now families sell off slaves only when they're desperate. I take from that that the slave trade in general has been decreasing. There are much fewer slaves, maybe, than there were a generation ago. What do you think? Is that because of, like, changes in the social attitude about slavery, or is that because of economic changes? Yeah, does it mean there's actually less slaves, or does it it mean the families are all just keeping their slaves? I guess we don't know. There's really not a whole lot in this book about the idea of possible opposition to slavery as a concept. Yeah, there's really nothing about how is it viewed morally. And it's also interesting that it's left out in this book because uh, when Barone is introduced, it says that she's very kind-hearted and she's a moron. She's whatever and she like buys songbirds in the market just to free them maybe i should be saying this in the next chapter because it's going to come out then um so maybe we can leave this for next time but um like she frees songbirds in the market because she can't see them she can't bear to see them in a cage but then she has no trouble buying literal human beings chapter two next time sofa starts to hope send us your comments questions thoughts chime in at atolianarchives.tumblr.com be blessed in your endeavors thank you for listening this has been an amateur embroidery production find us on itunes stitcher google podcasts anywhere podcasts are available 